out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the Senseless Things drummer, Cass Brown, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else, um, has been in lots of other pro- musical projects over the last 30 years, including Dead Cuts, but also is now working with Ed Hardcourt and uh, Richard Jones and have uh, formed a band called Loop Garrow X. I think that's how you pronounce it, but they've got a new album out titled Stranger Lands, and that is now freely available. Anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years and those musical moments that could shape your life. Anyway, Cass, take it away. Funny enough, funny enough, I was actually thinking about this for no particular reason yesterday, and that's really weird because my... The first thing, and I know it's, you've just mentioned Bowie, so I mean, I think that's an entry point for so many, but I remember distinctly um, on the the back of the uh, Ziggy Stardust sleeve where David Bowie's in the the telephone box and he's standing there, just looked. I had no idea what this was or who this was or whatever, but uh, in actual fact, you know, going on a tangent, my first introduction to Bowie was, um, was he used, to, uh, he read Peter and the Wolf. And I think my dad had bought me a tape of him reading Peter the Wolf. And that was the first time I heard his voice was actually kind of narrating, um, narrating that. But I just remember seeing the back of this uh, Ziggy sleeve and going, ah, oh, I wonder, I'd like to be in that picture. I don't know how you get there, but I'd like to be in that picture. But the main influence back then really early was probably my brother because my brother's about six and a half years older than me and um when when we were growing up he had the attic room so i'd hear kind of i'd hear the stranglers coming out of there and going like now that sounds good sounds really aggressive what's that and then um and then lou reed's transformer was one he played a lot right um but they were, yeah, I don't know. And he used to make cassette tapes called cassettes, which were half kind of um, music tracks and half uh, kind of bits of old Hancock and bits of, you know, goon shows and stuff like that. So, uh, and I used to have a little tape recorder next to my bed um, where I'd, uh, I'd just kind of fall asleep listening to these kind of different tapes. But um, I mean, the, the, first, the first thing that I ever kind of got obsessed with was, was when I was six and that was... Um, the Jungle Book. <laughs> <laughs> that soundtrack to The Jungle Book and a little red tape recorder. And I used to just walk around with this little red tape recorder playing The Jungle Book and turning it around. But then when I got older, um, I mean, the first, the first record I owned uh, was given to me by, by my brother when I got my first turntable when I was about nine. And he bought me Hendrix's Axis Bold as Love. My God, and I would never have guessed he would have gone for that. <laughs> yeah, well, see, I, and I'm, I've remained a Hendrix fan to this day. He's a beautiful, beautiful musician. But, um, and then the first, the first record I went out to a record shop and bought myself was uh, the Barney Men's Crocodiles, um, which sounds very, very cool, but 
it was because it was because I kept hearing it from my brother's room and I asked him what it was and he went it's this so when I first went to Art Price in Richmond that was the first record that I deliberately bought myself I'd probably I'd probably kind of been given bits and pieces before Yes. Uh, and were your, yeah. were your parents at all kind of uh, musical bent? Did they have a sort of uh, kind of excitement about music in their, in their life? Or were they parents who slightly had no time for it, didn't have the energy? Um, well, my dad was on British Airways and he was a cabin service officer for British Airways. So um, <laughs> he, he, um, he wasn't around a great deal. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because... Again, uh, again, I was thinking about this with my partner the other day because my, my dad, for whatever reason, he wasn't really into music, but he had a Best of Buddy Holly tape, which I fucking loved. And, uh, but he would play a lot of uh, musical theatre. Right. So, so I don't know, uh, the uh, West Side Story he really liked, South Pacific, uh, he really liked, and uh, uh, I'm laughing because I actually bought that record about a week ago when me and my missus were out, out, and I went fucking out. Uh, it was only it was in a charity shop, and I just went, oh, I haven't heard this on vinyl for a long time. But um, and he also he also had um, this. He wasn't really into the Stones, but he um, uh, he had a Stones compilation, and in actual fact. My very, very first musical memory of going, what is this stuff, was uh, hearing the song Get Off My Cloud. And I just was, it's, it seemed as a three-year-old back then, the, the funniest imagery I had in my head of someone trying to push someone off another cloud. <laughs> but it, it, but it's, that's one of the songs that you listen to. You know, Charlie Watts, Bless His Heart, was that, that, Drumbeat is just like, you know, it's instant, it's really infectious. So, again, I mean, the, the, the Stones were another one that my dad used to play, but he was really into classical stuff as well. And, um, but yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of Shirley Bassey. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Well, it's funny because because yeah. I think with my parents, I mean, I suppose they're a bit older, but they had that. Um, I think when they got married in the late fifties, being kind of working class at that time, I think I got the impression that they just kind of literally would sell everything, because because that generation didn't really have any debt. They didn't sort of go and borrow money. They they just used to sort of make do for as long as possible. So I don't, you know, I think my dad sold a few of his records, and we didn't have a record player back in the house until the early seventies, and then. But my brother, I had one of those brothers who was, I, I worshipped really, and he was seven years older, but he was into prog rock. So I... I became... Well, he should meet my brother now because in, in, the, last, in the last week, uh, he'll probably hear this, but <laughs> in the last week, I, um, I turned 50 a couple of weeks ago and I had a little 50th get together and he came along and I had to stop him telling me about early Van de Graaff generator because... I couldn't get that deep into any single conversation that evening because there was a lot of, I hadn't seen for a while. And then Luke Guru, my band with Ed and Rich, um, we played an album launch gig and afterwards, oh no, actually it was, it was that gig he started talking about uh, Van de Graaff Generator. It was actually at my 50th that he started uh, saying that, uh, talking about early Genesis. 
Lucky and this is this is my this is my brother who back in the day we were because we were kind of completely fostered on punk you know it was uh, these the, the divides there were really really kind of deep and clear yes you know, that, and, and the only was... kind of that that kind of snuck in that and I wouldn't call them prog in actual fact a lot of their early stuff is quite punk but a lot of the Hawkwind stuff he was a big Hawkwind fan and the, and the, the, the Robert Calvert era of Hawkwind I still fucking love and I think they're great you know so yeah He's a very, he's a fascinating guy, isn't he, Robert? He, he is kind of one of those kind of geniuses that I think he's, he's, there's not enough material about him to really make an amazing no, documentary. Which is no, I mean, the, the, I, I think um, possibly, along with Howard Diverto, I think Robert Calvert's probably my favourite lyricist of any band, really. But, you know, because, but he was... Um, I mean, as you probably know then, that, I mean, he was kind of tri- quite travelled psychotically and psychiatrically. And, um, but, you know, for him, that kind of, uh, that combination of kind of, you know, dystopian, modern dystopian technology and sci-fi coupled with a touch of mental illness and, um, and, and a kind of romance, I thought, I thought was really brilliant in his writing, you know. Yes, I can't remember who I was doing an interview with, but I was also seen that documentary where I think it was Robert, where the band were in Paris and they were all really scared of him and they wanted to get rid of him. Yeah. So they all got up early to get on the tour bus and they all got there, but they got in a traffic jam and he was kind of, he came running out of the hotel yeah. naked, banging on the door so they had to let him in. And they said, who's going to tell him that he's sacked? And he's unlocked because he's going to kill me. So, you know, it was one of those, I think that was that particular story. But... I, I think the weird thing is with that, with that particular story is they kind of, they were so frightened because he was having an episode that they kind of ra- drove off and left him in the middle of Paris. But when he caught up with them, they, they, they kind of didn't kick him out of the band. And they, at that moment, they continued with him because... <laughs> uh, you know, bands are strange things. You overlook a lot of things in bands, you know. Yes. Well, I was just, I've just been looking through the latest book by Kevin Cummings, who's got this uh, one on Joy Division, and obviously that's very poignant because, you know, no one was listening to the lyrics of the, you know, the, the other musicians weren't listening to the lyrics. Going, I think Ian's a bit depressed, isn't he? He's like, I don't know. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it's a uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, but, they, but you know, also I think you know, Ian Curtis was so young, and the rest of the band was so young, and you kind of, you know, you can't really credit people back then with having kind of adult analytical um, emotions and abilities. Uh, aside from that, the language of kind of the language of attention and empathy is is, is a lot richer than it was back in the seventies. So you know, there was um, things like that would slip through the net. You know. There's still evolving, but the thing is, is as as kids, you know, which you still essentially are if you're in a band at that age, is um, you know, you, you will miss things like that, which in retrospect seem like very obvious markers, you know. So yes, yeah. but it was strange just on that one point. But I do remember my parents had a Carpenters album when I was very young, and I remember listening to it. And being really amazed by the lyrics uh, as a 10 year old thinking, God, you know, I say goodbye to love and yesterday once more. And, and you know, all those, you know, uh, those songs, which are so melancholic and depressive. And I, I thought, no wonder I loved the Smiths and Joy Division later on in life, because they're, they're just basically coming from the same, you know, the same book, did aren't they? Feel, did you feel when you listened to, the, uh, to Joy Division and the Smiths, um, 
did you feel um, melancholic when you le- listen to them? Well, I I would they, I would have to be honest. I, I, I didn't l- get into Joy Division when they were happening because I was I don't know slightly missed them. But with the Smiths, I quite enjoyed bathing in that kind of hopeless romantic hopelessness of life it sort of helped my narrative of why I I probably was still single quite a lot of the time in the 80s so I think there was something like oh yes you know that sort of 16 clumsy and shy and unlovable and you know I would go out tonight but I haven't got a stitch to wear I mean I think it kind of in a weird way yes I kind of related to it but I also kind of got this thing about Morrissey at that time that he quite enjoyed it at the same time, even though he meant it. There yeah. was still something about, there's a slight twist in his kind of youth. The, the only reason why I ask is this, uh, I remember having a conversation with Mark from Census since years ago, and uh, we were, someone had described the replacements, as, as, uh, which was a band that we totally loved, as, as being kind of depressing and melancholic. And I was like, nah, man, they're not, I don't get that at all. And um, Mark was very much like, yeah, most of the stuff that we listen to is quite down and depressing. And I'm like, I don't get that. I mean, for me, I was absolutely in love with the Bunny Men and Heaven Up Here and Porcupine and, you know, those first four albums. And, um, and uh, but I never thought it was melancholic. That, uh, that, this is why I ask, is because a lot of the stuff that I listen to, like Scott Walker, I've, I've never stopped listening to. And there has been moments recently, I kind of, well, a couple of years ago, I moved into my partner's place and um, I started playing some of my old records and bits of Robert Johnson and stuff like that, and bits of Lead Belly that I used to listen to because I felt they sounded warm. And then there was moments there where I was like, I genuinely don't feel like this anymore because it, it suddenly kind of had taken a lot of the, the light out of the room, which is really odd because, you know, it had never done that to me before. So um, that was my question really, is because a lot of the things that people consider to be melancholic, um, I'm wondering if they, you know, things like uh, Q is pornography. I, I, I just remember being, when I was in, into it, it did the opposite of melancholia because it made me feel that, these were the type of people I would know and like and get yes. on with. So but it created a bit of unity. But when you listen to, say, Paul Westenberg's solo stuff, there was a track called Born yeah. For Me. Do you find that sort of rather sad and kind of, you know... Uh, no, but there's, a, there's a real duality with a lot of that stuff there because you, you picked up on it with the, what you said with, um, with Morrissey. is because there's a slight kind of... Um, you know, arch, not archness, that that's, sounds disingenuous, but a kind of um, enjoyment of releasing it. A lot of the bands that we used to play with that you'd consider to be kind of melancholic, you know, were, were um, fucking good luck, you know? <laughs> you, if, you ever, if you ever see kind of videos of Kurt Cobain, you know, uh, being interviewed or, or messing about with, with the people he was in a band with or the people around him, this is why you wouldn't spot stuff like that, is because a lot of people, the release is quite a cathartic thing to enjoy. There's a lot of, with Luke Guru, you would imagine from an outsider's kind of listen to it, these great billowing epic kind of, you know, soaring, disturbed, distorted pieces uh, that um, 
that it was kind of quite grave and serious. But I've, I've personally never, apart from playing one book, actually, but I don't think, uh, I don't think I've ever met people I've had as much fun with on an individual person, uh, personal basis. Yes. So uh, there's something about music that when you, you know, it, there is an otherness to it. There is very much an otherness that that's a third entity will take over that, that dialogue between you and what you're creating. And that will that will kind of imbue it with whatever it wants out of the moment. Yes. You know, so I don't think. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. It's yeah, that's kind of it's interesting. I think you you know when I listen to say, I don't know if you got into alt country, but people like Gillian Welsh and she does some amazing yeah. songs, and I think that's kind of reflective more than melancholic. You know, that's kind of like just that feeling of like, you know, like Sandy Denny's. You know, who knows where the time goes? I think that's kind yeah. of really quite a sort of poignant song. Or Richard Thompson with um, yeah. Um, Linda Thompson, you know, doing Meet Me on the Edge. And that's a kind of, I don't know, there's a Nick, Nick Drake, the work of Nick Drake, again, I find that. Yeah. I play that in the autumn or the, you know, um, Joni Mitchell's Blue Album. And there's something, it's not like, oh my God, I'm feeling suicidal. It's more like, God, I just feel like I can't believe, you know, how Yeah, but, you know, of... sometimes those tracks, they're just lugubrious and like a, like, a, like a warm bath, you know, that you kind of relax into. I mean, you know, you don't want music to sound Prozac, particularly, and you don't. The, the, and when it's kind of just mindlessly upbeat, it's got nothing to it. So, you know, when when things you you connect with the sensitivity and a wisdom and a sensitivity within, you know, the artist of the song that you can relate to. But um, yeah, my experience with a lot of the people who write that kind of stuff, most of them are fucking goofy off stage. <laughs> <laughs> which is quite handy so as the as the 80s progressed and we were we haven't even started talking about top of the pops and and you must have started watching the tube on on channel four on a friday at sort of half past five thinking yeah. that's what i want to do as a 13 year old oh um, yeah my personal things weren't really wrapped up with that i don't think um because my I don't know. I mean, my, the, the early stuff that we did with Sense Things, we were just, A, amazed that we could make something that sounded, that other people went, that's pretty good. Uh, the very first things that we did, we were like, fuck, this is great. Um, and from then on, I mean, if there was any kind of, we want to be like them-ish about it, it wasn't from watching performances on TV. It was, it was listening to the Buzzcocks, I think. And... Um, I think, you know, Mark was really into Wire and he got me into Wire. And, uh, and the, the early stuff that we did was very, very much trying to be kind of magazine, Buzzcocks and Wire, I think. Yes. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, th- I, I can't remember. Sorry, I can't remember ever kind of watching stuff and, and going, I wanted to be in, in, on TV or, or in, on the tube or top of the box or anything. But I did think I, we were very, very kind of strongly. We want to make a record. We want to make records and hold a physical thing. And I think the actually the earliest um, the earliest affirmation you could get of you you are now either officially completely made it, or at least you're fucking definitely on your way was uh, John Peel sessions. Yeah, uh, you know which everyone will remember taping off the radio and his his wonderful kind of eclectic nature of cutting between kind of usually the full 
uh, and then there'll be kind of a load of industrial noise, a load of beautiful kind of Malian African music, and then he'll go into some kind of, you know, some glam and whatever. And you were like, yeah, you know, just, just to be able to at some point in the future see your name in the list of bands on the front of the released pill session, you know, because you didn't have to have a pill session released on vinyl to get there, but they would print the names of the bands who'd done pill sessions. And when we found ours, we eventually did some pill sessions. And then when we found our name on the front cover of one of the, uh, some other, maybe it was just, um, only ones uh, when they released the pill sessions, I can't remember. But um, yeah, finding our name there was a big affirmation. And those are the type of things that I think we wanted to achieve when we were yes. really young. Well, I think that was kind of the spirit of the time as well, because I know with John Peel and, because I was a really, you know, discovering after my brother and his love of prog rock, and it and it started and finished with prog with him. Whereas I got that curiosity and thought, what do you, where do you get to hear good music? And then someone said, oh, listen to John Peel. And at first, the first track, uh, the first time I ever listened to, it, I remember hearing "I Am the Fly" in the ointment. I thought, God, this is not going for the one or wondrous stories or anything about topographic oceans this is very strange <laughs> but very kind of like kind of and then you hear one of those songs that you think god that's just genius so I, with the john peel show i always thought that you know you had to listen to it but there would be one song that would just jump out and you think that was worth the whole evening just to hear that because like you said there would be there'd be the early rap there'd be the Bundu boys the full you know yeah. bulgarian folk music you yeah. know i mean you know sly and robbie was, you know brilliant it was brilliant and you know what, the thing is, is I think possibly my favourite DJ now these days is Keris Matthews on a Sunday. Uh, I really love kind of all the various kind of places and locations and styles that she plays. But, um, but back when we were back listening to Peel when you were really young, I can't think of other, any other DJ of that time who was going that, you know, through that breadth. Of, of, of different things and it was that that was a complete marker if you could make if you could do a pill session and i remember kind of being insanely jealous of the band snuff who when they did theirs because it came out so well and you had a kind of there was a ubiquitous rule that you could only do four songs and they managed six uh, because they blended two into one really fast and we were like ah, nice <laughs> and uh, yeah. So yeah, you know, hearing your friends, the milk monitors who were on uh, at a pill session, and we were like, "Fuck, you know, it can be done. You can come out of this thing and do that." So yeah, it's uh, yeah. But the music he played was such a really good education, you know, for, for millions of people. But yeah. what what was quite interesting about that period and those decades, especially say the eighties, is that you had those gatekeepers. You know, you had three weekly music papers with phenomenal yeah. circulations. You had John Peel which gave every band that opportunity of like, at least I might get heard beyond my little local neighborhood. And, and then you had every city and town in, in the, the UK had an alternative indie night, which was often on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, that at least you could play in front of 100, 200 complete strangers rather than friends and family and anybody else you can blackmail to go and see you. So you could just kind of get in your transit van. But it kind of gave everybody that that apprenticeship didn't it for a few years of like oh this is what you do and then you start to learn your yeah. craft a bit like I remember listening to the the lead guitarist of Twisted Sister who said you know we just played for years but by god by the time we were in the studio we really knew our stuff you know it was like we knew what worked we knew what didn't work we knew how to play all our instruments we just kind of could go in there and bang it out and you know 
that was it. We were, we were just, you know, I didn't like Twister Sister, by the way. <laughs> but I love, do- I love document, rock documentaries are like, oh yeah, this is brilliant, don't care who they yeah, are. I, yeah, well, I've, I can't, I don't think, to be honest, I can name a single Twister Sister song. I know the singer's called Dee Snyder, and when you watch things like The Metal Years, the documentaries with uh, Rise and Fall of Western Civilization, those ones, uh, the, which are fucking hilarious, you know, um, some of the kind of glam hair metal bands coming out there, it's ridiculous. In fact, you know, earliest memories, I used to go, go to record shops and just stare at the cover of uh, the Tigers of Pantang record and just laugh, you know, and just go, fucking look at these idiots. But, you know, I've never even heard the record, but uh, they're probably nice guys. But, um, yeah, um, the thing with, with, with census things, and recording, that's the thing, is, you know, Mark would write a bunch of songs and we would go and um, we would go and rehearse. And we used to rehearse like four or five times a week in um, above his dad's club in Richmond. And then after that, we went, you know, two, three times a week to a place in uh, Acton called Survival. But as soon as we could get gigs, and lots of them, if you ever look at the old tour dates of, of kind of what we're doing, there was just so many. And But, uh, but the, what I'm saying is the process, how we used to record, was, I mean, the first record we did, uh, the first album we did, we recorded entirely in a day, and it was mixed the next day. And, um, and then... It wasn't until later on when you know we we, we would re- write, rehearse, record, uh, tour, and then at the end of a tour we would go in and uh, re- record the record, and we would just kind of it was literally like a, a dropping off. This is how we sound, and then we'd start the process again. And it wasn't until kind of later on when I started to get into kind of um, sampling and and kind of um, well before there was. Logic and Pro Tools. There was a program called Capewalk, which I kind of, you know, learned how to do um, uh, programming and stuff. Uh, but up until that point, you would you would get everything ready to record, and every other record I've made since then has been uh, the opposite way round, which is you kind of write you 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 don't demo you you record as you're writing, and you build that song and you kind of make that thing. And then when it, the album's finished, then you learn how to play it. And then you go out and, and, and tour if you can. So it's just, um, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't say one's better than, one's a better method than the other, the, you know, but um, yeah, the, that process has changed, definitely. I don't know many people now who kind of tour and then, and then kind of record when they think, well, now we know how to play these songs. Yes. But, you know, as somebody who you said that hadn't sort of been a drummer when you were younger and had all that experience, you must have been slightly <clears throat> boggled when you started hearing the noise that you start, you know, you were making because because you, you kind of hit a, a good formula straight away, don't you? It's not like one of those bands that you hear and you think it's all right, but I can't kind of hear the I can't hear anything beyond just good but you were sort of making songs that were in i mean you know i mean obviously we you know you know that everyone's going to mention you know too much kissing because it's like god that's an indie classic you know just it's kind of going to be there with all the other indie classics of our time isn't it and you must have thought hearing that back how the fuck where did that come from you know that's just gold well i mean yeah it's funny that because i've never actually said this to anyone before because that particular song if you if you picked out of all the albums that Census and Sins did, 
you know, there, there's three or four that people always kind of pick out, but Too Much Kissing is the one that uh, that is the kind of, you know, the emotional benchmark of what we did. And it was actually on the first record. And, um, and the funny thing about that, and the thing that I've kind of, we've never, it's never come up before, is um, <laughs> um, Mark used to have this kind of lovely um, semi-acoustic Gretsch, and we were in his bedroom at his flat in Twickenham. And uh, he went, what do you think of this? And he just went down, 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 ba down, 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 and he played this little riff. Oh, no, that's really cool, man. It's a lovely little thing. And he looked at me and went, I'm just pissing about. I just made that up. And I went, we should do something with that. But he was going, no, seriously, I was just fucking about. And then he did. And he, what he turned that little, what he was just trying to make me laugh for this riff, um, <coughs> what he turned it into was great. And, and then we recorded, as I said, that came out on, on the Postcard CV album. And that was just one of 10 songs that we kind of belted out that day. And um, yeah, but uh, he was a very good lyricist, you know, and he, he I'm not I'm not downgrading what he'd uh, written with that riff, but it's it's the melody, the lyrics, and, and his delivery on, on on that that really resonates. You know, the feeling like we're exiles, lines and stuff. You know, so yeah, uh, it is it is it is one of the ones that people pick out as being kind of you know a, a, a template for what we did. Yeah. And was that the first was that the first track that John Peel ever played? By the way, no. No, the first the first track he ever played, I believe, was a track called "All Over You," which came out on uh, in a I think it was a fanzine called Sniffing Rock, and it was on a flexi disc. Um, <laughs> and I think I think it was us and Crazy Head were on there, and um, I think it was just a flexi disc on, on this magazine. And John Peel played it, and then. Crazy Head, I think, asked us to play with them because of that at the Astoria, and uh, and then after that, we got offered a Peel session quite early on, and uh, yeah, and that that was all way before Too Much Kissing, yeah. Yeah, right. Blimey, have you seen have you seen this? Um, yeah, I've seen I've seen someone taking a picture of it online. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's uh, all coming. It's that, all that's coming. Kind of, yeah, that's uh, isn't isn't that Pop Loops off and, and the bikers? Yeah, the bikers and that scene, the whole gig, yeah. you know. So um, Grebo, here we are. That's that, that's going to be in a lot of people's Christmas present stocking, isn't it? Really, that's a, it's a good one. It's it's all there. I mean, amazing stories. Is uh, it? Is it all there? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yes, because in that. Yeah, in that I, I was going to say, in that period, you know, and as we mentioned the Smiths earlier, and I was, I was such an indie kid, kind of 87, when they, they split, and then, you know, like, there was all those bands like the June Brides and the Yeah, Yeah, No, and uh, the Wolfhands, they were all slightly, I mean, they didn't all stop in 87, but there was definitely a shift in, in a lot of the music, because I, I sort of realised, having done this for a while, that there's that next wave of 16 to 18-year-olds want their soundtrack, and they don't want something that's been around for three years, for Christ's sake. Mm. They want their next band, don't they? And and I, I must admit, I was sort of, even when the Smiths brought that last album out, Strange Ways, I just was thinking, 
I'm sort of wanting to hear something different. And then we had, you know, obviously there was all the stuff from, you know, Sonic Youth was happening and the butthole yeah. surfers and then the Pixies and anything on 4AD we were starting to love like yeah. that. So it was like you're looking for the next sound because in a way you're thinking, yeah, that's lovely. I've been, but I've been listening to that for quite a few years and John Peel's mm-hmm. now playing all this other stuff, which is like Daydream Nation and... Um, yeah, you know, and obviously we heard too much kissing, but then there was, you know, the Bleach album that came along, which I thought was just brilliant, and went along to the art centre to see Tad and Bleach, you know, Nirvana together, and thinking, oh yeah, this is where it's at, and the 4AD with Throw Muses and the Pixies were playing, so 89 was kind of another, you know, all those bands like Silverfish and the and My Bloody Valentine and the Faith Healer, so you you came along at a period where, you know, music had really started getting exciting again as well as that dancing that happened with you know people like sort of um the happy mondays and uh, the mm-hmm. stone roses so you obviously went into that other camp more than the um dancing didn't you um yeah um i don't know i mean the, 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 with with um sonic youth and who i loved i really loved them really loved them and with um, Nirvana, um, our press officer for Census Things uh, is a guy called Anton Brooks. Oh, was that Bad Moon? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ginny and Paddy there and, and John. And um, yeah, I mean, the, so we, we kind of had things like uh, Sliver and, and Bleach. And, you know, famously, you know, Anton gave us each of a cassette of of the of Nevermind, like well before it came out, and just said, "Oh, you should check this out." This Did he give you a name. copy of the Orb as well? The Orb, yeah, because <laughs> the Orb, the Orb were on that that because he because I, I bizarrely I was. Getting... I don't know. I did. You know what? I don't think so because I probably would have remembered it because I did like the Orb. And the thing is, is whatever music people were playing, it, it's it's not as polarized, you know. As people think, I mean, I'd be with Mondays, especially. You know, sense things. We used to play the Mondays in the in our van the whole time. But I mean, the Stone Roses, as much as kind of they were seen to be so kind of pivotal and 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 kind of influential. I mean, I I, I love that first Stone Roses album, but I didn't listen to it until ten years after that it came out. I don't know why, because we're but. You know, we um, we loved the Mondays and just thought they sounded great. And uh, um, but the the kind of I guess where we were and what we could do and what we felt resonated with us, I guess would be more of the kind of noisy guitar stuff. We we certainly kind of went after after the for the first too many stuff. There was still a lot of buzzcocks kind of you know influences on there a lot of replacement stuff but then the, you started to get kind of the idea of little bits of dance beats which don't sound uh, retrospectively i don't think they they i don't think they kind of completely served the songs that we kind of used them on as well you know morgan's just recently remixed the, that entire first too many album and what he's done with it is, is just so big and huge and uh, and and, and much has stripped back some of their stuff and, and, and pushed up some of the guitars and elements that we've kind of buried. And, uh, you know, he's turned in something, something amazing. But the, um, 
we we would definitely listen to Soulside, Fugazi, lots of the kind of Discord stuff. And Mark really liked Dad's Nasty, and there was like minor threats. And so uh, a lot of the kind of American stuff was already kind of seeping through. And um, we did play with Mud Honey quite a lot. And uh, and I think then when we started making songs like Homophobe Glass, they were, you know, they were very, um, they were very kind of influenced by that one in particular. Musically, is, is very Sonic Youth. Yes, I mean, it, 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 it is. It would it would fit on Daydream Nation well, wouldn't it? Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but um, the yeah, the, the the shaker and snare drums kind of stuff is a direct steal off Steve Shelley for Sonic Youth. There was also some of the guitars and the, the noises on that. I used to be able to go to uh, the second end, the Notting Hill uh, Record and Tape Exchange had a music thing and they would chuck out these guitars for about 30, 40 quid. And I knew that you could only get one or two, you know, if you treated it as badly as, as we'd intended, we'd get one or two takes out of it. And uh, I remember kind of going to Morgan's with these 30 quid guitars and, <clears throat> you know, plugging them into his four track. And we were kind of just putting, you know, doing the kind of bashing and crashing and drumsticks and da 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 da. And, and he was recording it and very speeding it. And uh, and I took it in to put over the um, the, the the track, the homophobic Glasswell track. And uh, our producer for that one, Ralph Jezard, uh, I played him what I, I had 90 minutes of noise, and um, which I thought was amazing. And he just looked at me and went, fuck off. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he went, you want me to listen through to that and then take the good bits out? And I went, well, yeah, it's just put it in here and here and here. And he went, he, he, <laughs> he marched me to a room with an Akai sampler and set headphones and went, you fucking do it. And basically made me sit there. And I, I just sat there the whole night listening to feedback and finding all the little bits that I really thought, well, that might work if we throw that in there and throw that in there. And in and amongst Ben's solo and all that kind of stuff, um, uh, that's where a lot of the kind of um, those feedback and kind of reversed sounds and stuff come from. But it was very much that was lyrically that completely stole kind of and rightly so stole a lot of the headlines with uh, you know we were interviewed directly about about the lyrical content for a song called homophobic arsehole which was you know um a very proud moment for us i think but i was also quite kind of i was quite surprised because Equally, I thought the music had taken such a different, wilder kind of direction and was, was so much kind of more powerful and ragged and fucking experimental that I was like, yeah, there is also actually the music that we're making as well. So, you know, but for, yes. yeah, we, we, we were very much kind of influenced by a lot of, uh, a lot of those American bands. But the thing is, is um, as I said, it, 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 things aren't that polarised. So we'd be listening to everything, you know. And like, I mean, before Spotify, you had to make your own playlists and stuff. And we, we the stuff that went on uh, with all this stuff is Morgan's kind of breakbeaty Jimmy Smith kind of um, Hammond music, and you know, and, um, 
and bits of Van Halen and then Ben would play Metallica and then we would turn that off and put something else on. So, yeah. I could imagine yeah. Morgan had a very cool, because um, his dad's a singer, isn't he? And he's, he's kind of mm. toured with all the, uh, the greats and has that sort of 60s yeah. heritage. So I'd imagine his... Um, Yes. Didn't Taylor Swift cover one of his songs or something drastic? Yeah, I don't think she knew that she covered it, which is funny. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a song called I Can't Stop Loving You, and <laughs> which I think Phil Collins had covered. And I think Taylor Swift may have thought she was covering the Phil Collins song, but it's actually written by Billy uh, Morgan's dad. But, uh, you know, his, his um, uh, records, uh, the, the one he did, Would You Believe? It's amazing. It's got like, you know, half the faces on there and kind of, you know, some of the Who uh, people on there. And there's loads of his stuff I really like. I mean, um, uh, London Social Degree is, if anyone wants to just put that one into YouTube, it's a fucking classic. Um, there was one that Morgan used to play out, which I loved, uh, uh, called White Lightning. Um, I thought it was that that was a lovely one. Yeah. Yes. Because this was all kind of, you were only 20 at this stage, weren't you? You were sort of grown um, 1991. Yeah, I would have just turned 20, yeah. But you were, you were sort of having to sort of, you were learning fast here, weren't you? Because you'd already, you'd been, on, you'd been on two record labels by then, hadn't you? What Goes On and then Vinyl Solution. So, and the band had already sort of had a John Peel session. Was it in 19... 19- was it 1990 you had your John Peel session with Dale Griffith, who was in Mott the Hoople? Yeah, oh, Buffer, yeah. No, we did, I think we did three, I think we did three uh, Peel sessions. Uh, I'm pretty sure because four, they came out on a record and there was 12 tracks on it, so that makes sense because you, you get four tracks to go. I know that with one of them we did five. And I, I know, I think it's the last session, it was Buffy from Mott the Hoople, he was the engineer, producer of all those sessions. And he put Mark against the wall for us because Mark said, oh, can I double track my vocals on this part? And the whole thing about it was that you men are not really do overdubs, you lay it down, it's kind of, you don't do extra takes and stuff. And, you know, it's literally how it goes down. And Mark tried to um, double track something and I think Buffy was in a bad mood. <laughs> and, and put Mark <laughs> against the wall. Um, yes, uh, which we found hilarious, but uh, yeah, um, no, I think, I mean, by 1990, we already kind of played in Japan, and we toured a lot in, in Europe, and we'd done, I think, two or three, no, two, maybe two pill sessions by then, and um, I think we were probably on more record labels than that. The Way Cool one, I think, was a, was a kind of um, shared ownership with a guy called Pete Buttle that myself and Mark used to work for down at, um, uh, in Camden when we were about 14. I think we were because he used to run one of the bootleg tape stores. And uh, on a Sunday, he'd set up and what is or the, the electric ballroom. So uh, we actually kind of ended up doing our first records with him. I think Girlfriend, uh, the Standing in the Rain and Girlfriend, and then the, the four track or five track first EP that we did. And um, and then it was decoy, and then it was what goes on, and what goes on had folded um, the day I think that we were going to release uh, an EP, the Andy and a Carmen EP. Um, and I think, unless I'm missing something, I think we signed to Sony after that. Yeah. 
Yes, that is it. The, the Sony. How were you coping with sort of the the sort of the murky and interesting world that is the record business? Did you did you have management at this stage? Was or yeah. guidance? Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, um, a guy called Adrian Boss, and I think I think Adrian got us Bad Moon. I might be wrong about that, but but his partner Ginny worked for Bad Moon. So that's possibly the, the connection there. But um, yeah, and he he got assigned to um, to Sony, and it was a guy Gordon Charlton uh, who signed us, and uh, he actually signed us. I don't think they were really. <laughs> I don't think they were gunning for us as a company, but um, Gordon had signed Bros, and they they sold a couple of records. So you got to choose who to sign next, <laughs> and he chose <laughs> us. <laughs> and uh yeah uh which was very good of him but um yeah um murky world i don't know i mean it's, it's fucking saying as everyone's really yeah. yeah i mean people say it was murky back then but um musicians did get paid back then maybe they didn't get paid as much as um they should have been earning and some got paid more than they should but um you know it's uh it was a lot more cut and dried then in terms of where your income streams were you know yes now earlier this year we were all very excited because the nightingales robert lloyd had a film out didn't he king rocker yeah. which had uh, dear old stuart lee and stuart um, lee and that was all kind of very exciting then we learned a bit more about robert's life and he he starts making videos doesn't he with Stephen Wells, does he is he one of the people that helps make your video of homophobic castle? Homophobic yeah. castle. Yes, uh, Stephen did. Steve Wells. Stephen Wells. Yeah, he's sadly no longer with us. Um, but um, yes, <laughs> Stephen Wells. He he, we, he did a couple of interviews with us, and the first time he interviewed us. Um, he fucking went in for us. Uh, I don't know why. I think that that was his style of trying to wind people up or confront or be confrontational. And um, we'd had that before, but he was actually very intelligent as well. So, which is a real fucking bad combination. But um, yeah, so me and him ended up arguing about that like stuff. And um, and I got the distinct impression that he didn't like us. Um, I found out afterwards that he did because we gave it back or questioned where he's coming from with the stuff. But when we did um, Homophobic Castle, he did a uh, he did a kind of like one eighty, and um, and I think we asked him to do the video because he felt what we were doing there was straight from the heart, and and he. He, we asked him to do this video, and I don't think he had. Um, he, I don't think he'd done a lot of videos before, but so it was very kind of, um, you know, uh, gorilla, go with your first ideas, shoot and edit it later. And uh, but he 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 did get a lot of people to do to appear in this video, and I think Marky Smith, and Boy George, and um, Jim Sunville, disposable heroes of hypocrisy. Sonic Youth themselves were going to be in it, I think, or or send a message uh, uh, to to drop in. I think Sinead O'Connor sent something in, and um, 
he, he and Leslie from Silverfish was in that as well. And uh, yeah, he, he just, he did that. And then he did the next video that we did after that called Primary Instinct, which actually, funny enough, uh, features a young comedian called Mark Thomas. Right. Who went on to be Mark Thomas, um, <laughs> a slightly older comedian. Um, but uh, um, as a Smiths fan, you probably won't like it because he dresses up like a Nazi Morrissey with hearing aid and gladioli. Yeah. He already he already had ideas and he already sort of seen the future. Well, you know, I, th I think Stephen had called what he saw quite early, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I suppose was it yeah i don't know god it's it's a whole weird one really you know it's, thank god david bowie was my first single and my first love that's all i say he, he never yes you know. and when he passed away in 2006 the fabric of the universe started unwinding didn't it we suddenly got brexit and then we suddenly <laughs> got one thing after another and it's like i don't know the double yes. of kind of Bowie and Prince leaving, you suddenly went, what's going on here? You know, yeah, so we had Trump, Trump, Brexit, and then COVID. So, you know, Bowie would be very surprised that, you know, since, since that time. Yes. So when you, when you signed to Epic, you know, and, and you sort of, did you suddenly have a bigger budget and, and sort of, because it, was it Ralph, Ralph, that you, um, yeah. you end up working with now? But did, was that the first time you'd worked together? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, Ralph, we really got on with, and because um, we 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 really liked the guy, and he was. Um, it was funny because he told me years later, he because he, I think he'd had um, number one with uh, EMF, with the unbelievable thing, and um, he kind of got cherry picked by loads of people to kind of be the next big producer, and and. Um, he has told me possibly with a tinge of regret at some points, but he, he, he got called by Madonna to produce one of the things. And he went, nah, fuck it. And he pointed to our name on the roster because he thought that was the, I don't know, it's the only thing that he thought was ridiculous and jumped out. And then he listened to it and went, yeah, you know, good, good, solid punk rock band with songs. And he went, I'm going to do them. Uh, I don't know an element of belligerence or, you know, contrariness within himself. But I've, we really liked his production and he did a, he did a kind of remix of, um, or a mix, a proper mix of um, the song Got It Out of Del Mar, which came out on the first Too Many. And he just, he, he, he kind of made it sound harder and bigger and fuller. And he did, a, he did his own kind of dance mixes of it. And um, I don't know, it's, you know, Contain a bunch of Marilyn, not Marilyn Manson, Charles Manson um, samples, and um, and we just went, oh, we'll we'll record with him. And I think the first song that we did with him, I think I might be wrong again, but I think it was Homophobic Castle. And I remember we were recording. I think it was at Wessex, but I remember because it was where the Pistols had recorded, um, you know, a lot of the Nevermind Bollocks album, and. Uh, we just, we, yeah, we did, we did really connect with him. So we, we, I think he did the next two albums after that as well. Yeah. Yes, my God. And was because because the sound has definitely got a lot more kind of um, sonic, hasn't it, and and sort of excitable. Did you did were you kind of also aware that sort of the the beginning of Britpop and and the sort of the 
you know, what was going to come next in the sense of um, all these kind of shiny bands on top of the pops. Looking back, do you sort of think, oh, shoot, we should have, we could have done that, couldn't we? But we went in that direction instead. Do you think, I'm not being facetious, but do you think that's what I would think? No, <laughs> not at all, no. But um, no, yeah, I don't know. No, no, I saw that coming and, you know, we, you couldn't not see it coming. We lived in London. We played a lot of gigs in London. We knew a lot of the bands and, you know, we went to the same kind of clubs like Syndrome and Smashing and, and as those people and a lot of them we knew. And the thing is, is... I don't know if we, we were probably age-wise still younger than them, but we'd already made two or three albums. And I think we were gradually being seen possibly as kind of in a Darwinistic sense of here comes Britpop, everything must go. And it was definitely, I mean, we toured in 1992 with Blur and, um, and that kind of um, the Brits are coming attitude was already there. I mean, you know, a lot of these people were and remain to be my friends. But the thing is, is for me, I felt at the time it was a slightly kind of nationalistic throwback to something that I didn't really think was real. I loved the Kinks and I loved Small Faces and I loved the Who. But I kind of, it's, it's to me, the technicality of it, and the, you know, the, and the feel of it, it felt really... Um, primary colours it didn't it didn't feel real to me and there were bands that came out of that period that I wouldn't consider to be Britpop who I fucking loved and I thought Supergrass were great energy and great songs and I love Gaz's voice and uh, and I still do and Luke Guru got the chance to kind of um, for our first gigs we went and supported them when they did their reunion but um, most of that Britpop thing I just thought was just I don't know, it's just really ridiculous. I, you know, it, it kind of felt, I don't know, just flag-waving, man. You know, and, and when we had already toured in lots of places and we were already listening to music from all around the world, to be what that looked at, if you looked at it from the wrong angle, uh, I, well, it, it did not resonate with us, really. So, no. Yeah. no, no, not at all. I know. I mean, yeah. Having said, having said that, there were bands that came out of that that I did like. And, you know, I thought Suede's records were really good. And funny enough, my, you know, uh, we ended up, myself and Neil Codling from Suede, we ended up playing together in, uh, <laughs> in the Penguin Cafe, which is a minimalist folk classical, you know, outfit which is completely kind of instrumental and very Steve Reich and Philip Glass and completely different to any of the bands that we've been in. And Neil's a beautiful person. And I mean, but this is what I was saying more is that, is that a, lot of, uh, a lot of the bands that came out of that period automatically got put into the idea of Britpop. But it's, it was just, that's the time that that band released some music. But the, the template of Britpop wasn't, I thought it was silly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I don't know what its legacy is, really. Pardon? You know, I don't know what its legacy is. I mean, and I don't know, you know, getting into the 
politics of stuff. I mean, I thought there was a certain kind of um, self-aggrandizing kind of arrogance with that that came with that, that if you followed the trail through the years, maybe that's what morphed into this sense of Brexit of we're better off without fucking everyone else. Maybe the, maybe the paper trail started back there. But I'm not going to, you know, go into that. I'm just, it's a supposition. <laughs> It is. The John Major years leading up to Team Tony, Tony and New Labour, it was all, um, I don't know. Yes, I, I sort of, you know, it's like you start looking back on certain decades and it's like it, it, changed, it kind of feels quite different how I look back at the 80s now and even the 90s. You know, one starts feeling so different about aspects of it that um, I suppose it's just the passing of years and, and sort of, you know, contemplating what had happened and... Um, neither dust has settled but it, it it was very strange it was very weird as well so um dear old dear old 90s so then with the band you were you, did you do much in america were you touring the states much at all at that time no we did we did tour with um with blur uh, we, it was a really long one as well i think it was two months with them and then we did another month on our own out there um that was 92 and um yeah some some bits were fun and some bits when you're that young my dad was really ill at the time and uh he passed away in in july of that year so um yeah it's a difficult period that yeah yeah but we did i i don't think we um i don't think we went out there again as censuses I mean, we've all been out there again in different guises, but uh, I don't think Sensitions went back to America. Yeah. It, it's interesting because having done this show for a while, a lot, of, a lot of bands split up after they do America. It's one of those kind of classic yeah. moments where they go, we toured America and then we came back and split up because we just had enough. So um, it seems I to break a lot. I mean, I remember Ian McCulloch uh, from The Bunnymen where, when he was asked why a band like You Two went you know broke america and the bunny men didn't and he went well they wanted me to do they wanted me to do three months or three weeks in america he goes i don't you know i can't leave liverpool for three minutes without going fucking mad you know but um i think um i think i can i can understand it because you know doing long tours the good thing about sense things is we, we had kind of permanently been on tour anyway so for us going from a transit and B&Bs to a tour bus with day rooms and uh, was, it, it wasn't that element of, of being away wasn't difficult, I don't think. But I can, I've seen lots of people after two or three weeks on their own go fucking apeshit and, and you know, feels very dislocated from routine the routine of being at home or touring locally yeah yes uh, i did i remember the i can't remember his name but the bass player who was in voice of the beehive who was just touring yeah. constantly and he said he realized it had all gone wrong when he'd he'd spent quite a long time talking talking to himself in the mirror realized and he thought it was a person they went shit that's me and i think that was when he he sort of realized he needed to get some kind of help or treatment of some description because um he was i think he realized he was getting a bit psychotic and a bit sort of like i don't even know what day of the week this is or what country i'm in well so. you know what when you're when you're living on kind of you know not particularly kind of 
proper food you're kind of nipping in and out of service stations and and truck stops and stuff like that and your sleep is you know disturbed the whole time and you are disturbing yourself with various kind of uh you know environments uh then it's it's really easy to become fucking unhinged yeah i'm sure (laughs) so when you came in the mid 90s taking care of business was that a feeling when you were doing that album because Again, you know, I think it was Jacob's Mouse when they were doing their last album. They said they knew it was kind of over by then and um, it was a matter of just doing it and thinking, right, that's it. And and they felt okay about that. But was there a sense with the band that that, that was going to be your last album or was there no, no such idea in the air? I don't, I don't think you realise it until it happens. Um, I don't think you realise it really until it happens, but what happened was a couple of things happened, very pivotal things happened, was um, we, we, we did these demos down at a place called The House in the Woods, and I remember at the time, I remember at the time I'm just saying, I don't want to play drums, man. I, you know, I want to make some loops. Some, something and I, I put this thing together that with brushes and stuff that kind of sounded a bit like Lou Reed's Transformer walking the wild side and and Mark then took that and put something that I it just sounded self-pitying to me at the time and I didn't feel like that and there was then there was the issue the huge seismic issue of the fact that Kirk Bain had killed himself and um for me there were, there were kind of routes that you could mentally go down of either kind of in sympathy twin yourself with his psychology and become self-pitying and become darker and moody and this was and then lots of people started doing that and I just went fuck that I I thought personally we and the world had said as far for that moment, as much as guitars needed to say, is how I felt at that time. And I just, while we were recording that album, myself and Morgan set up another little studio in, um, in I think we were in Battery or, or um, Britannia Row, I can't remember. But we just set up another little studio and started recording some other stuff. And I was fucking really into um snoop's doggy dog style and i really love the beast boys and i really love della soul and jimmy cliff and you know and a lot of the studio one stuff and i just kind of i wanted to hear music that sounded like fucking joy and sunshine as an antidote to to something else and there was never there was never a plan to just shut down sense of things uh, it just wasn't where we were going but I think I kind of I don't really have a lot of happy memories of that very last album there's some great stuff on it there's some really great tracks on it but I was just kind of I became more interested in in sampling and and creating something that sounded fresh and had more joy and color in it to me and and just you know there was so much more else going on and I just I just thought to stay in that one position was going to, uh, if we dragged it out further, 
without without changing direction, I think I would have become very unhappy. And so I, there wasn't a deliberate move to shut things down, but myself and Morgan did. He was already kind of, you know, working with home studios and, uh, and he was putting Hammond on stuff and using ADATs. And it just seemed more exciting, you know, more, more fun. And just the whole thing about music and bands and at that age especially is, it's got to fucking make you feel good, man. You know, it's got to energize you. And that's what mucking about with samplers and breakbeats and, you know, it just connected more for me yes. at that time. Then loads of the stuff that me and him did, I ended up resampling stuff from that. And that's what started the Delacota album, which I did after that, you know. Did you... um? Did you suddenly, because you mentioned him at the beginning, I always love to go back to David Bowie, did you suddenly resonate with, you know, how he must have felt after doing, you know, Ziggy and uh, A Lad Insane and thinking, actually, I just want to do something else with some different musicians and a different vibe and a different sound. I want to do, I want to do Philly Soul. I want to do, you know, Diamond Dogs. I want to go to Berlin and do, you know, Station to Station. Did you? Doesn't everyone, every band want to have fucking adventures, man? You know, that's that's how I felt. You know, I didn't, you know, uh, there was absolutely no correlation uh, between kind of that and going, it should be, we should chameleonize ourselves and become more like shape-shifting David Bowie-esque artists. It wasn't that, but I think, I do think you follow your instincts. And I think that possibly people like Bowie, it wasn't as uh, kind of uh, premeditated as it might look retrospectively. But um, no, I think th there was a couple of points for me. Urge Overkill, who were a guitar band, uh, did uh, an album, Saturation, and they used uh, these guys, the Butcher, uh, Butcher Brothers, uh, to, do, uh, to do the production on that. And there's a song on there called Dropout uh, that my friend Lawrence Bell played it to me. He played me that Saturation album. And it was, just a, it was just a simple song, and it had a little breakbeat over it. Uh, and it's... I just thought, yeah, man, you can do both. And, you know, there, see, there still seemed to be then this thing that kind of lots of the kind of hip-hop stuff shouldn't, you know, if you're in a rock band or, or kind of that area, you shouldn't really be going into that other area. And I just thought, well, that's all the good shit is, you know? And, uh, and I just like the idea of trying something completely different. But, uh, no, I think, I think there wasn't anything kind of... Con preconceived about that move it, it was it was retrospectively if I look back on it it was a survival technique in, in so much that um, I needed to make something that sounded less um, bored <laughs> you know it, I just needed something to sound more fucking skippy man you know and I wanted the artwork to look different and I wanted the idea of um, using loads of different musicians as well, whether or not we were sampling them or just working with them or just inviting people in. I, that was always really exciting to me, was, was the idea of kind of getting people in to do just little touches of things. And I also really liked, uh, I remember reading something about Primal Scream where Bobby Gillespie had said, look, I don't sing on this next 12 inch, but it's a Primal Scream record. And I just thought, yeah, fucking great. You know, did that attitude of just going, we're going to make some music, and if I like the music, I'm going to fucking release the music, you know? And that, that I just, I didn't like the idea of going, well, because we were one thing, we've got to stay that one thing forever, you know? So that was 
there was no deeper thought in it than that. Yes, blimey. It does happen though, doesn't it? And was it the case that Mark was keen to keep the band as it in the same kind of vibe? Um, yeah, the, that session at the House in the Woods, I remember having this, what I don't know if you'd call it an argument, it wasn't an argument, it's a disagreement. But he was, I was going, we've got to fucking try and do something else, it'd be fun, let's experiment. And, and I remember him, and I think maybe Ben at the time, going, well, that's not really the band we are. And I went, he says, what band we are, what are you doing? Why don't we try something different? And um, I, I, it kind of fell into that area of, of some people wanting it to stay the same as some people wanting it to change. And there's two ways of doing that, really. You can either keep one thing the exact same and then go and do another thing as well, or you can stop doing the first one and concentrate entirely on the second. And yes. That, uh, kind of where we got to, and Morgan, as I said, he uh, he went and he was, well, he worked on that Delicate record with me and my partner at the time, Des, um, musical partner, incidentally. Uh, but he was, um, <laughs> he was, um, uh, Morgan was really pivotal in, in that, and another lifelong friend. And it wasn't the fact that he was in census things with me. It was the fact that he was kind of heading out on his own path of sampling stuff and, you know, and I had the same sense of humor as me as well. And that's really important. And, you know, so I think we just started, um, I think there was a lot, a long time before anything got put together on that Delacoa record, where it was just, I was just on my own in my flat with a sampler, trying to teach myself cakewalk because there wasn't the internet to download tutorials or anything. And it was a crack copy, so I didn't even have a manual, so I was just working it out and plugging it into a four track. And I'd just stay up all night and kind of try little bits and pieces. And, um, and then, um, and then I started working with Des because I don't know, we did one of the first songs we worked on was a song called The Rock. And with that, uh, there were no vocals on it. And it was, um, I, I had what was nine minutes of complete instrumental and I wanted it to be like a Brian Eno record. I just wanted it to be drones and, you know, to evoke the image of a starlit night, but in the desert. And I just wanted silence on it, kind of, you know, different, Bit shades of silence, and um, and uh, but Des really liked it, and he he kind of made it a little more structured in terms of chord stuff, and then made me write lyrics, and then made me sing them, and you know. <laughs> but then we went down to Morgan's place in in Richmond at the time, and uh, and we started putting together kind of um, stuff for an album. And Morgan played a load of Hammond on it, and. Uh, which, you know, I didn't ask him to. <laughs> <laughs> I just turn up one day and the fucking record's covered in hand. Um, <laughs> but no, it, you know, he, uh, uh, he's a brilliant musician. I love playing with him. So it was, it was just, it was, it was fun. I remember that period of just being, feeling really released from something. Because we, we had been in sensing since we were 12. And do you think, do you think it, Delacota kind of saved your life? Did it, did it sort of was the thing you needed? A, um, well, no, I don't. I don't think it saved my life, but it fucking made it better at the time. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I did have a kind of, you know, 
a lost weekend in 1996 that lasted about a year when I was doing that record and uh, well, not doing that record, but when we were trying to kind of come up with what it is and, you know, who's going to do vocals? Are we just going to leave it instrumental? All this kind of stuff. But in between myself and Des and a whole bunch of us, we've effectively been on tour for about eight or nine years, like nonstop. And if we weren't touring, we were writing. If we weren't writing, we were recording. And if we weren't recording, we were rehearsing. So we never stopped. So 1996, we split up in 95. And then 96, I think we kind of, I just, it's quite disorientating if you've been doing something that consistently for that amount of time through the most pivotal points of um, of your the transitions of your childhood of kind of you know from puberty to first girlfriends to you know your first drug experiences to losing my father to moving to kind of you know just all, all this shit and you go through all these things together and then suddenly it skids to a stop and you're like well what fucking now and uh you know there's a little bit of the wily e. coyote moment when you go well i was while i was doing this other kind of record while we were making this sense of things record um it's very different to suddenly all the structure you know not having the, the 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 kind of framework of a band and a label and a manager and this and suddenly just being on your own and you just suddenly go fuck um maybe i've made a big mistake or <laughs> maybe uh, <laughs> maybe i'm not as confident as i thought but then you then we just kind of we just chipped away man and then you know and and uh, the music for, forever it's there's never not been a time in my life where music hasn't been the catalyst for change and and has rescued me from situations and changed them into better things that has been the through line whatever band i've joined you know has always been well sometimes it's a rescue from the one i've just left you know <laughs> and they, 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 they cross over a lot uh and whichever one I was was just falling apart, the new one kind of seemed like a glorious palace of joy, uh, you know. And then that one will fucking catch fire, and someone will burn their ass in the kitchen, and that one will fucking just be destroyed. But while you're rescuing, you know, hi hats out of the kitchen of that band, another one will come along. So it's just you know, um, yeah. But no, I wouldn't be as dramatic to say it saved my life, but. I, I wasn't feeling very good at the time. And I, I, I know what I said about Kirk Fane, but it, you know, that we knew a lot of people who, who worked with him directly and knew him directly. And the influence that that band had and that person in particular, it suddenly felt like something had really shifted on the landscape. And what you were left in this country was what I saw was a very kind of, you know, facile, brit poppy kind of, Thing and I was just like, oh fuck. Um, mm, okay, and then, you know, it's um, yeah. You you know, for me, writing my way out of situations helps sometimes. Yeah, a lot. Yes, but mm. then two years ago, you you um, you start Loop Guru. Is that how you pronounce the the um... Loop Guru? Yes, Loop Guru, which is French for werewolves. But <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean. Again, another one, another one that, you know, uh, 
I've said many times that this might be my favourite, my favourite band that I've ever been in, and it's um, that this came, this came at another very windy fucking time in my life where um, I was going through a very very difficult separation, and I was living, uh, uh, you know, thankfully at a friend of mine's, and um, and uh, my friend Richard Jones, he. Uh, he phoned me up because we had a mutual friend, Ed Harcourt, and Ed I'd met um, <laughs> I'd met in 2007 on a on a stag do where I was the best man and I arranged for some reason arranged a um, a stag do in Romania uh, to go to visit Bran Castle because I said my friend acts like Dracula. Oh, you good know, idea. He's, uh, he's he's always out at night. Dressed up like Jack, you know, da da da, drinking wine, la la la. We should go there. And then three days after I said that to him, I suddenly get phone calls from people going, "When are we going to Romania?" And then I went, "No, it's fucking about." And and then I had to book it, so we all went there, and that's where I met Ed. And um, I, I, I think <laughs> I think the first night I met him, we had to put him to bed because he was berserking, um, going apeshit. Uh, but um, Ed, Ed is another fucking beautiful musician. He's he's uh, he's obscenely talented, and he's a great singer. And he, he's primarily been a solo artist. Um, and um, me and him always stayed in touch since then. But I think in 2018 he was kind of licking his wounds after he'd released an album called Furnaces, uh, and I think it kind of got shelved after four years of his work he had it produced with flood and he was really really proud of it and then there was something that happened at the label and they switched something out and someone else put it and it, and it, it kind of fucking knocked him for six and my friend richard uh, our mutual friend phoned me up and went why don't we go down and just surprise ed and listen to some of his songs that he wasn't using for it and just beat some shit over the top of it and we went down to ed's wolf cabin studios um and uh I don't think we started listening to his old stuff because we just sat down and immediately wrote new songs. It just, pow, it just came out. And um, um, I think the first songs that we did, like Strange Angels and um, I Know the Truth and those ones, they just came out that very first day. And including, you know, I wrote the lyrics on the Strange Angels and Ed kind of went, have you got any lyrics for this one? And I went, well, he went, well, fucking write them. And I was like, okay, so, uh, and I kind of wrote them and, that, and he sung them in. And that's kind of what we used. We didn't redo those. And same with his guitar parts on that, which are, he's primarily, by his own admission, a, a um, piano player. So he plays a guitar left-handed and upside down and he's a piano player. So, but what he gets out of it is a completely idiosyncratic sound. So, you know, it was, and again, it's just, it was just joyful and there was no kind of hang-ups or grudges or boundaries of this, that, because we, you know, we just, we just all three really got on and connected. And as I said, I was going through a very difficult time at that time. And to have something as absolutely explosively cathartic as hearing something loud and beautiful and aggressive and 
huge and expansive coming out of a set of speakers, it will, you know, it will take you out of yourself and it will take you out of your immediate concerns, you know? Yes. And, uh, so that's why I like doing it. <laughs> well, I would imagine. And did you, I mean, that you, you formed two years ago and then the album's come out this mm. month, which is, I, yeah. I was listening to it today and it sounds fantastic. So was it mostly recorded during the lock, the dreaded lockdown period? Yeah. Were you, was this your project? Or have you have you just recorded it this year? We've recorded another one in lockdown, but that one, that one was finished. Fuck me, man. That was uh, that was finished. I think November two thousand and nineteen, and it was mixed. Uh, we recorded it. Ninety percent was recorded in Ed's Wolf Cabin studio, just us three, self-producing, self-recording, fucking about, and and we just did that, and then. Uh, Chenzo Townsend, um, we uh, mixed the record afterwards in um, Decoy Studios in uh, Suffolk. And, um, but we, we went down to his studio and I think we went a couple of days, two or three times, and just recorded little bits, you know, additional vocals. And uh, I redid some drums because the original ones were just done with mics just hanging off fucking swords as they do and um <laughs> uh, so we, we we kind of did some bits there but um no that one was completely finished and we were trying to just finish the last mixes on i think three songs and then the pandemic happened and the lockdown happened so we couldn't go down and then quite quickly the world you know changed how they did things with technology. So we did, I think we mixed these last three. We were being sent mixes and I was screenshotting audio files and, and putting little circles and going, there's a, if you look at here, four minutes and one second, just here, there's a digital click here and sending them pictures of stuff. And it's just insane. Uh, but uh, we did the last bits over, over Zoom uh, with, uh, with, live streaming from the mixing desk uh coming through uh I, I had my laptop there and we were on zoom here and then we were just mixing it via headphones and then that was all wrapped up in april april 2020 i think and then then it was a matter of kind of well this lens soon won't it and then we'll, we'll be able to play let's not re release the album until we're going to play because you know Otherwise, fuck it, you know. And then it looked like it was going to be in November. Then it looked like it's going to be January. And then it looked like some other shit. And things were just getting cancelled all over the place. So, uh, so we just went, fuck it, we're going to release it. And um, we don't care how. But the thing is, is I think if, if you are in the stages of when you're writing stuff, if, if you've got something that you're about to release, there's a little bit psychologically of going, I don't want to get too far into writing the next thing or how I work because I'm still kind of in this mode. And it, that, that eventually something that was absolutely, it's, it's the record I'm most proud of, uh, of everything I've done uh, or been involved in. And, um, and then but eventually if you don't just fucking stick it out, these things just, you, you, don't, want to, you don't want it to go off. You know, and you don't want to start resenting it as being something that you couldn't quite. So we, it, it just had to come out so we could move on and do the next thing. And we, we it kind of got released digitally. Um, 
last on October the 8th and then um, with the vinyls with the vinyl on it uh, we 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 put the order in but there's um, I think we got a really lucky slot but it's going to be a couple of months some yes. people are waiting for a year but we we got in quite we were lucky with that so I think we're looking at somewhere e from earliest January latest March April but things still change because it's not just the pressing plants itself that are over, uh, overbooked it's the fact that they can't even get the shellac to print vinyl you know so it's 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 um it's it's difficult but bring that kind of brings me back to what you were saying about kind of signing to epic in 1990 or 91 you know the the, the murky areas of the music industry it's like at least you fucking knew what was going on then you know ish yeah now it from from day to day and who, who's got the capacity to who's even got pulp to um print a record sleeve you know <laughs> God, it sounds it sounds like the seventies, doesn't it? You know, it's going to be, you know, probably I don't know three day weeks and yeah. So, so. Uh, I don't want to take any anything away from the the glamour, uh, the glamour <laughs> of the industry. It's so uh, yes. You know, Come on, kids, sign so, up. It's an easy life. Yeah. Um, it's all. Does the, does this experience then fill you with a lot more joy than when you were with the Dead Cuts? Did that? What was that experience like? With you know, because going from one band to another must be, you know, that must be a very different experience. Because because it sounds like the three of you have got a nice gig going. You kind of know the deal, and you're sort of you're pulling in the right direction. What was the Dead Cuts like? But there was no Dead. Uh, the, was there? Well. Yeah, dead cuts. Um, well, myself and Mark had spent a long time, as I said, with census things, and then I wasn't, I didn't really know the dead cuts stuff, really. And I knew he had been in different things, but I genuinely hadn't, I'd, I'd seen him once in about, I saw him kind of once in 2007, and I hadn't seen him for like, 10 years before that and then I saw him in 2007 and you know he wasn't I don't know if you've seen pictures he wasn't really in great shape you know and um, you know but he we bumped what happened was is we we'd had a fucking big argument and I say argument it kind of takes two people to argue but he he flipped out at me via text message and sent me some really really hideous uh, text and um, I kind of did, and that was in 2010 and it was I kind of thought it was something to do with the fact that he'd, he'd try to get me to get him into uh, Gorilla's gig and we were playing I think it was the O2 and he kind of he texted me and said can you get me a ticket and I texted him back and said oh, mate I can't I said even the band have got to put um, applications in three weeks before and he went sneaking around the back and I just went I can't it's not everything is seated and there's security and I can't do it and he went ah. and uh, and then a couple of months later I started getting these terrible fucking texts so I left it and then I think it was 2014 we had a mutual friend actually a guy called Austin and um, we started kind of checking in on each other through that through him and he very kindly kind of, you know, puts in touch again. And I just sent 
mark a message. And I, the replacements had reformed and were playing the uh, the Roundhouse um, in Camden. And I bought Mark a ticket and I sent him a message and went, I'm really sorry, man, if you felt that I was, you know, blocking you out, it was really difficult. I wasn't doing that. I would have, of course, got you tickets if I could. And, but I've got you tickets for an even better band tonight and it's the replacement so this uh, anyway he apologized and da, 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 and he was genuinely sorry he said he was having a kind of bit of an issue at the time and we went and saw the replacements we kind of just started going yeah and then a couple of months later he just asked me if i could fill in this is the famous route <laughs> could i fill in for his drummer for one gig Mm -hmm. I went, okay, man. I said, one gig. You know, I just said, it's probably, now we're friends again, it's probably best we don't immediately start working together. And that gig turned into, oh, actually, now you know the set. Can you do this other gig? And I went, yeah, okay, I'll do this other one. And then it was like, Severdo, who we knew from the Census Sims days, were coming over and they, he was like, oh, my drummer's dropped out. Can you, can you fill in here? And I went, oh, I really like Severdo. I really like to see Lou and Jason and stuff. And, um, so I agreed to do that. This is this is this is a cautionary warning to people. This is how trouble starts. And um, so we started writing stuff together in sound checks and rehearsals. And suddenly, there's a whole bunch of new songs. And and Mark is really was always and remained prolific that way. And I kind of just, it was really nice to play again and it was really nice to play with him, even though he was a completely, it was almost like a completely different person. He had done something to himself to remove the identity of the person he was before. And it was, that was kind of difficult when you've grown up with someone since you were five to, um, to not feel you want to look after, you know? And that's mm. what I felt. Is is the fucking truth of it? Is I just thought this guy really needs a little bit of fucking care and attention because he's not giving it to himself. And we enjoyed playing together, and we had a lot of fun. And um, then that turned into well, now we've got these songs that we've written, and you know the parts because you came up with the drums on this. Can you record the album? And I said, yeah, all right. And he, he went, he went, yeah, it'll be two days work. Um, uh, oh, yeah, oh, two days work. It was 11 months. <laughs> 11 months of overdubs and this and that. And, and as is mine and his collective want, you know, you just, you end up kind of just changing arrangements and then adding different instruments and saying actually the running order should be this and this is how this should sound and maybe this mix is better than that and it's just impossible because if, if you if you start something it's really difficult i find to not to not just go i have to finish this all the way to the end because otherwise it's half fucking picture and it doesn't work and so it's just you that's how it happens and uh and then we ended up playing with um with Bash and Pop, who um, a friend of ours, John Kastner, manages Tommy Stinson from The Replacements. He was also kind of in Guns N' Roses. And he, Tommy had his own band, Bash and Pop. And uh, I kind of messaged John and said, hey man, fucking I love this. Uh, oh, well, no, that's it. I put something up, um, an old thing about Tommy. And, uh, 
and John messaged me and went, oh, you know, he's just done a new record. Do you want some dates? And I went, absolutely. And it was that there was a beautiful kind of full circle there of me and Mark playing together again and with a band, with Tommy Simpson from a band that we were so infatuated with when we were younger. So it's, but, um, you know, then, I'm sorry to go on a tangent there, but in terms of joy, uh, no, it wasn't the same. It wasn't an unbridled thing. It was like dragging, it was like dragging a fucking broken train up a carousel. It was just, uh, but you had to do it because there was a sense that, oh God, he would like, there was a sense that, you knew that Mark wanted this, you know, to make these records. And then then you knew that he had a brilliant talent and he could really do this stuff. And he really wanted to get it out. But then he, he would kind of just miss, he'd book a rehearsal and then just miss stuff. And it just became a kind of, you know, a showdown of wills between me and him of I'm not going to let you fuck up your record. And him just basically kind of going, you know, let's see. You know, but the record did get made, and it's a, again a fucking really, really good record. That's the Hilton or Sixes record, those Dead Cut's second one. And, um, and but after that, a couple of things happened, and we, we you know, uh, we did do with Census Things then because of the Dead Cut stuff. We we did that one off um, reunion with with sensings at the Shepherd's Bridge Empire, Mark felt then um, a lot more conducive and a, mo a lot more happier to play that part, to play that music, which I think when sensings ended, I think had kind of hit, put away somewhere and didn't want to look at it for a while. And, and then when we started in the Dead Cut stuff and there was, there were moments that were just, it was just really, really fun to be with him again. Really, really, um, you know, it, if you listen to the, the, the Sense of Things first cut of records, it's like there's a real levity and a real joy and smartness and, and you know, a lust for life and explosive kind of, you know, confidence in, in, in Mark. And then, some of the dead cut stuff was was poetic and rich and beautiful, but was quite dark. And it was it was a, a, certainly a different side of him. And then, but when we when the idea of reforming citizens just for the Shepherd's Bush Empire gig came, and I think me and Mark both referenced that uh, replacements roundhouse gig. Um, we just went yeah, and we spoke to Morgan Ben and. Uh, and they both were like, yeah, it'd be fun. And there was only kind of with that, there was a, a, a kind of big proviso that we, we put down is that people used to say that we used to kind of sometimes live and play too fast. And uh, I said, you know, if we do this, we, we, we've got to be, we've got to play twice as long and twice as fast and just fucking, <laughs> just to be belligerent. And Mark was, fantastic that night he was so good he was so good and morgan and ben and uh, and it was there's, there's been a couple of gigs uh, 
that I've kind of been a part of, but the, the, there was something in, sounds really cliche, there was something in the room that night, but there was, it was, it was so many people who'd seen that. It had kind of, because we played, no, no one in, 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 um, in Sense Things had ever stopped. That's the thing. It wasn't like we were, you know, coming out of night five jobs to just relearn our instruments, just to play it. We had all continued to play continuously since we played in Sense Things. So when we, played that gig we played it like a fucking band and like a band that loved each other and loved that music and played it with total heart and conviction and joy and that the people who were there who for them were you know it was their kind of teenage years as well you know it was it was really it, magical is a but it was yeah it was yes. really good to do. i guess i guess at the time, but now, especially looking at, back at it, um, it must have felt like actually that was a kind of a perfect way to put a full stop at the end of that that kind of amazing chapter of your life, really. Some full stops, I think, get forced upon you. You know, that, that wasn't... We, we certainly weren't going to reform. I don't think that was the thing. But Mark had come up with a couple of new songs. He was, he was, he was comfortable with the idea... Of, of doing dead cuts and then also writing for census things and we started actually kind of re-recording well that came out of the fact that we, we actually kind of when we rehearsed at Morgan's we started recording the rehearsals so we could learn our parts and, um, and then we started realizing that in some degree we were playing some bits way better than we ever had so we started to kind of re-record stuff and Mark started to kind of put new vocals on these and start writing some new stuff and and then you know he, he got ill you know yes and, um he, he went he, he kind of retreated from from it and us for you know indefinitely yeah so, it's grim isn't it was it what was the last time you ever saw him or spoke to him because he it was a crisis it was this year wasn't it he died which was um yeah yeah uh, yeah the last time i saw him was The last time I saw him, I think we were recording as dead cuts. Um, I mean, this is after the sensing stuff, and we were recording eight tracks. I don't know. I don't really want to make surprise with that. You know, he just turned up eight hours late for a ten-hour recording session, and I, I just, I didn't have the stomach for it anymore, and. Um, it was a shame, uh, and but I just said it'd be best if you find someone who can work on that kind of rhythm because um, I can't. And um, and we stayed in contact, and we were still speaking on the phone and texting each other, and then um, and it was all great until until he's just flipped again about something. I can't remember what it was, and. Um, Oh, I do remember what it was, but yeah, no, it was it was just a weird thing. It, like he'd found some old sense of things, takes and uh, it, it to the untrained eye, it kind of looked like he was trying to sell them to delete them or whatever. I don't know. And we had a we had an angry phone conversation, and that was the last time I spoke to him, and which is really really sad because um, just before he passed away. Um, we were just kind of 
in the process via other people of doing what we did before, reconnecting and sorting stuff out. But um, yeah, it just moves things, man. You know, he, he just, um, he, he, he had quite a difficult dark side by a certain period in his life, you know? Yeah. Over that, you know. Um, was there a cult because there was kind of the whole sort of Pete Doherty thing and the libertines and this kind of and I noticed you know from doing a lot of interviews with bands from that New York late 70s early 80s period you know with all the New York Dolls stuff there was the cult of the junkie wasn't there I mean was there a sort of a people playing the kind of rock star kind of thing during that Dead Cuts period Is that aimed at, is that, is that a description of anyone in particular? <laughs> I just wondered, you know, well, Pete, you know, there was that kind of, I suppose, you know, I didn't know until I was doing all this that, you know, heroin was so kind of, you know, like um, prevalent in this sort of New York scene in that 70s period that everyone said, well, you know, it was just there. And then there was this kind of other bit, wasn't there, with, um, yes, you know, drugs kind of taking... Well, yeah, yes. I mean, I'm not going to fucking skirt over it i mean you know my position on heroin has always been um don't fuck about that i mean uh, you know i've got very personal family kind of you know reasons why i was always you know very much against that drug and um and <laughs> god uh, you know it's it's difficult because i know this is being recorded but no i have no fucking uh respect or, or uh, admiration for that, or glamorization. I know exactly what it does, and you know, uh, I, I don't. I, I find the the romanticism of the glamorous junkie poet to be fucking really dull, really boring, really hackneyed, really juvenile, and it fucking ends the same kind of way most times. He doesn't kind of blossom into this hugely fucking prolific and beautiful, you know you know, body of work, you know, and so it's, I find that kind of, and, and it forces secrecy also upon a duplicity on, on people who start doing stuff that to their own friends that you wouldn't, you wouldn't credit. And, uh, but no, I, I, I think Mark was definitely, you know, he, he co-wrote Can't Stand Me Now and uh, with Pete and I've never, I have met Peter actually a couple of times, but um, I, I'm not enough to kind of say hello or whatever. But I, I think Mark and Pete were good friends, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, do I think Mark was going was working to a template there? Well, the, no, I don't really, because the thing is, is the funny thing about Mark really early on, especially in Sense Scenes, is he he really sneered at that kind of cliches. And uh, we were definitely big fans of the New York Dolls and we were definitely big fans of certain aspects of Johnny Thunder's stuff and the Heartbreakers stuff. And we liked listening to it. But in terms of the kind of cliche rock and roll thing, we were totally against that. You know, there's no, there, that doesn't factor in anything that we did really. And certainly hasn't factored really into kind of anything I've done before or since. So, and I don't, I don't know. I think maybe Mark liked or played up. I think, I don't know, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I, I think some people kind of put that image on him and then he played up to it and then it got put more on him. And then it was like, see how much I can survive with, within that world. And it just, it's, it's really, it's really mixed up. That. And uh, I, I don't think it, 
harbours a huge amount of creativity at the end. And it's certainly, even if it's any good, it certainly fucking takes a long time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I always remember Lemmy saying that it makes you a cheating, dirty dog. He hated, he hated that scene, didn't he? And that was Lemmy. Amazing. <laughs> well, you know, uh, all of these things have their pros and cons, but I mean, you know, heroin, I just think it's fucking rubbish. You know, I really do. You know, just because it, it is turned and so much gold into shit, and I, I don't like it. Yeah. So look, yeah. on that on that cliff, I, look, I'm, I look. <laughs> How do we start talking about this? It's going to be a fun. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, if you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self, just like, you know, just if, was, is there anything that you would think, oh, yeah, that would, I would have just whispered. Run, in. run, just run me. as fast as you can. Don't look back. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it, you mug. Um, what would I say? No, I don't know. You know, th this is the type of question where you think you might one day have a really smart answer, but I don't. I don't. Um, the the only thing I would probably think about is 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 that bit where you think you're getting your career together is your career. That bit where you're going, oh, maybe I'll try this and do it. Might do that. No, that's the fucking that's the ride. That is the whole ride. There's never been anything other than kind of um, falling forward. Me, <laughs> <Really? laughs> yeah, and, uh, and 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 trying to land something gracefully before falling in and the next one this is yeah. it. You, you know well look thank you ever so much for sending me the link to the new album because i like i said i was kind of fascinated no playing that today and um i really hope that the band sort of manages to get out and about and live because you've played with super oh, we, will. we will we will and i mean as i said i think you know the, I'm, I'm glad you like the record but you, the, the, there are there are really really Vicious, powerful, beautiful songs on that on that album. That it's got such a big heart, and uh, and it's 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 fantastic to play with uh, with Ed and Rich and create something quite personal. But you know, it's it, it's the sinews on the band are pretty strong, and it, it just feels like we played this gig the other day, and it was just like it was the, it was the first gig that I full gig. Uh, that I played since before the uh, lockdown. We, we, myself and Morgan also have that other band, uh, Circle 60, with Des from Delacota and our friend Aid. And we played a gig at the Water Rats um, as a small warm-up because two days later we were, we were going to be supporting The Who uh, in Manchester, uh, 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 two stadiums, one in Manchester, which was going to be my daughter's 21st birthday. So she was coming, and then two days later on the 18th, it was going to be Des's birthday, and we were playing in Dublin, in Ireland. So it looked absolutely perfect. And then two days before the um, the pan, we were two days before we were going to do that gig, the pandemic hit, and everything got locked down, and the the gigs got cancelled. And uh, the gig I played the other week with Luke Guru was the first one I've played since then, and. Um, it again, just an absolute unclogging of the pipes. It was just, you know, just a lovely, wonderful fucking explosion. You know, you don't realize how much you miss that and the human, the absolute human interaction. Over the last 18 months, it's, it's so much has been 
done by internet and files and emails and downloads and this and that. And it's just like you forget, you know, you just time a road certain memory and you kind of go, oh, shit. When you suddenly are in a room with people and you see, you know, there's one guy, fucking, we've only released one record and this guy came down from Scotland for the gig. We were only playing for 45 minutes and he went, I fucking love this band. I've booked myself into this travel lodge tonight and I've come down from Scotland. And fucking, what an amazing concert. And you're going, this, this is what we've been missing. That level of human interaction of, you know, visceral human emotion and, and just being with other people and fucking putting a smile on each other's face, you know? It's, yes, uh, that's it, what it's all about. Okay. Well, look, best of luck. And, and thanks a lot for the time for this interview. And it's been amazing. And I could send you a link and, and you can use it elsewhere. And um... <laughs> uh, Do us a favour. When you listen through to it, cut all the dark stuff out because it gets a bit fucking sound like a therapy session. Do I owe you for this one? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But anyway, look, right. thanks a lot. I'll, I'll keep in touch. But look, that's great. Have a great evening and um, best of luck for the rest of the year, as we say. Yeah, and to you, man. Cheers. Okay, take care. See you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. There you go. That's how you end an interview. Well, not really, but um, I always like to leave it in because it makes me smile. And that's good enough for me. Anyway, a massive thank you to Kaz Brown for giving me the in time for that interview. It was quite long. But anyway, you get the gist. Rock and roll. It's all brilliant stuff. Um, yes, if you want to find any, any more information, you can Google him. Senseless Things. You'll find um, Stranger Lands out there somewhere on the internet land and probably... Elsewhere, um, if you want to contact me, and if you do, just be nice and positive, please, or just don't bother. Um, you can you can contact me on um, yes, just do C eighty six show. It's um, yeah, Twitter in Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, that's the one. And also, these have all been archived. So if you like them, check them out. Obviously, don't bother if you don't like them. Um, it's Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do it anyway. Look, have a good week. Stay safe. <laughs>